All right, as we continue in our Christmas series, we are going to be in the book of Matthew again uh, this, this morning. Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, grab them, turn to there. You know, every town has its own traditions. I remember in my town uh, growing up, we, you know, they would always hang the same type of lights. You know, the downtown area, they would always kind of do the same kind of things. There would be the giant snowflake-looking things on all of the light posts as you would drive through the town. And they would have different lights on the trees. And they had those really pretty ones that, like, slow sparkle, and they're kind of spread out, and, um, and they would have, uh, you know, uh, just all those different kinds of little things like that, and uh, they would always have the, this big nativity set that was right there, kind of uh, at like the courthouse, uh, right there kind of in the front lawn, right when you kind of came into the downtown area in good old Kernersville, North Carolina, K-Vegas as we like to call it, and uh, that was funny, come on. And, and you, as you would drive in, you would see that nativity set, and they kind of did the same thing every year. And I remember uh, the year, I don't remember about how old it was, but I remember the year where uh, people began to get upset. People began to write letters and to be on the news and to uh, stand in protest that uh, it was a, a problem of the separation of church and state for the state to be put in a nativity set in front of the courthouse. And we ought not do that. And I remember everyone getting up in arms and everyone getting mad on both sides and people being, being furious about, uh, we should be able to put the nativity set there. That's what Christmas is about. And other people say, no, that's a religious thing. Christmas isn't about religion. And there would be this big fight. And I remember when they took the nativity set down, and it's probably never gone back up. And I remember how that began this dialogue where now it's always a question. We get mad at the, the Walmart greeters when we walk out and they say, Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And it seems that now every year we talk about this war on Christmas going out there in the secular world. All these people who say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, people who write Xmas instead of Christmas. But spoiler alert, the X is actually the Greek letter for, that starts with Christ, so they, they, they don't get that. But, uh, but they say Xmas instead of Christmas, people who want the holly jolly, who want the songs, who want their family and the presents and the trees and the stockings. They want the hustle and the bustle, but they don't want Jesus. We talk about those people who... Uh, we talk about the war on Christmas, but what I want us to see this morning is that the war on Christmas is not about the courthouse and the nativity sets. It's not about whether they say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. It's not out there in the world. The war on Christmas rather is going on in every human heart right now. The war on Christmas isn't a culture war. It's a war for your hearts. It's not about the Walmart greeters and it's not about the nativity sets. It's about what you do with your life in response to this baby who has been born. What is your response to the newborn king? You know, really, I don't care about the culture war. I don't care what people say as I leave Walmart. I don't care if there's a nativity set at the courthouse. Because we could have the nativity sets and we could have everyone say Merry Christmas, but yet there would still be hundreds and thousands and millions of people's hearts who were at odds with the king of Christmas. And changing those things wouldn't change their hearts. So 
culture war on Christmas doesn't matter because there is a war in every human heart on whether or not to make Jesus their king. And I think that battle is worth fighting. So let's read Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Let's see where this war all started. Starting in verse 1, Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very words of Christ, and he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You may or may not have watched the show, but this show has uh, been super popular lately, and a character from this show has blown up. It is The Mandalorian. And on The Mandalorian, you may not know, it's a Star Wars TV show that's just come out, and uh, uh, this Boba Fett, you might, some of you may know that, Boba Fett-looking bounty hunter, was charged with this mission to go find this 50-year-old person and bring him back. And at the end, spoiler alert, so plug yours if you want to watch and have it. Uh, you're too late. You're like six weeks late. But he, he, he goes and he finds the asset. He takes out all these people. And when he finds it, it's actually a baby Yoda looking thing. And it is the cutest thing you've ever seen. It is so cute, in fact, that not only is everyone in the Star Wars galaxy trying to hunt down this baby in the show, but everyone in our world now wants them a little baby Yoda doll. Literally, Disney is sold out back-ordered until May to get a little baby Yoda. Uh, And so there have been people, uh, you know, crocheting their own baby Yoda dolls and selling them for hundreds of dollars because they're in such high demand. If you don't know what baby Yoda is, Google it when you get home. You will fall in love. But it is amazing how one cute little alien kid on a TV show can kind of turn our cultural world upside down for a few weeks. And that is a simple fraction of what happened when Jesus was born. You see, the story of Christmas is how one baby turned the world upside down. How one child divided the world. How a baby changed everything. See, the birth of Jesus, the birth of this child, demands a response. His coming 
matters. You see, King Herod knew that it mattered. The religious leaders knew that it mattered. The wise men knew that it mattered. But what we find in this story this morning is that they all respond differently. C.S. Lewis famously said that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it is of infinite importance. But the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. But what's interesting is that everyone in our story All three characters, Herod, the religious leaders, and the wise men, they all believe that this Jesus, this child, is incredibly important. They all believe that this child will change the world, that his birth changes everything for their lives. And none of them reject that news. None of them are unbelievers. None of them think it's nonsense. But yet we find that they all respond differently to the Christ child. So first, let's look at Herod and these religious leaders. Uh, Look at verse 1. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The first thing that's so interesting here is how Herod and these religious leaders in Jerusalem find out that Jesus has been born. You see, They find out because uh, some guys from the east who are not Jewish show up, these unclean, uncircumcised, Gentile, which means non-Jewish dudes, show up and let them know, hey, where is the king of kings? Where is the king of the Jews? But wouldn't you think that it would have been the people who knew the Bible, who had been promised this king, who had been passed down from generation to generation, who knew about these promises, who would have noticed that he had been born? Shouldn't the Jews have noticed the star? Of course they have. Of course they should have. See, it was the Jewish people who should have looked up and seen a star. They should have known Numbers 22 that says, a star will come from Jacob and a scepter will arise from Israel. They should have known. Of all the people they should have known that the birth promised had been announced, the problem was they weren't looking. These men from the east were. These men called the magi or the wise men, these astrologers, they noticed. So they came to Jerusalem asking, hey, where is he? Where is the child who has been born? And they expected in Jerusalem, the heart in the capital of Israel, that those people there would know. They knew he had been born. They just weren't sure where. And so they assumed that the people in Jerusalem would have been throwing a party and celebrating that they would have known. But they didn't know. They didn't know because they weren't looking. But now the Magi have told them. They've let them know. And here is how Herod and the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem respond. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. See, King Herod, you need to know a little bit about King Herod. He is is the king of Israel, but he is kind of a fake king. He is is not a Davidic king. He is not the rightful king. He is a Roman placeholder to keep the peace, to keep everyone in line. Because Rome, you might remember, is in control of Israel. They are running the things. And so they have King Herod put in place, he's not even Jewish, to run things to keep everyone in line. To keep Jews submissive under Roman rule. And see, uh, Herod was the type of man who was always... uh, 
worried and, and thinking that somebody was plotting to take him out and to take his throne, to take his kingdom from him. And so literally, there were, any time that he heard whispers or he was suspicious of someone who he thought was after him and his throne, he would put them to death. And history tells us that he had, he had a lot of wives and he had a lot of children with all these wives. And some of the wives and people would begin to whisper in his ear that, so, you know, your other wife over here and her son, they want, they want your power. And when he began to believe those things, he would have his wives and his children with those wives put to death so that he would not lose his throne. See, that is the kind of man Herod was. He would rather have his family executed rather than lose his throne and his power because he loved being king of the Jews. So imagine Herod's reaction when these guys show up and they say, hey, where is the baby, the king of the Jews? You can imagine that his ears would perk up a little bit and say, come and say, what? We don't have to imagine his reaction because the text tells us. This news, it says it troubled him. It troubled him that there was a baby born who was foretold by God who would be the rightful ruler and king. And so what does he do? He asks the religious leaders and the scribes, the scribes to come to him and he says, okay guys, this, this king of the Jews has been born. Where is he supposed to be born? And, they, and, and, and it's interesting. They didn't know that he was born, but they know where. And they say, oh, in Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah is to be born. The king of the Jews is to be born is in Bethlehem. And so Herod then calls all the magi, the wise men to him, and, and he's playing this game. He's playing a part. He's pretending to be excited. And so he calls them in secret, pretends to be excited, and he wants to know, hey, guys, when did you first see the star? When did you first see the star rise up in the sky? Now, why does he want to know that? Because he wants to know how old the baby is. You see, our, our nativity scenes are wrong. The magi, the wise men, were not there at Jesus' birth. They did not show up for a, a year or a year and a half after he was born. And so some time has passed since the baby was born. And so Herod wants to know, how old is this child? He wants to know how old he is. And then he sends the wise men to Bethlehem and he tells them, hey, y'all go find the child and then come back to me, tell me where he is so that, wink, wink, I may go worship him as well. But as we know, that's not Herod's plan. Herod wanted to know where the child was and how old he was so that he could have the child killed. Just as he had killed his wives and his sons, lest they take his throne. Thankfully, God warned the Magi not to go back to Herod, and so they don't tell him where he is. So they don't go back to Herod. They don't tell Herod where the child is or how old he is or anything like that. But Herod was so committed to staying in power, so committed to keeping his throne, that when the wise men did not come back, did not report where this new king was, well, they left him no other option but to send troops into all of Bethlehem and to slaughter every two-year-old boy and under. Because if he kills them all, surely he'll get the one that mattered. So he slaughters these children. He didn't care what it cost. He didn't care what it cost anyone else, because no one would take his power and his throne from him. 
See, Herod knew that this newborn king was real. He knew that he would grow up to be powerful, that people would follow him, that he would be worshipped. But Herod was unwilling. Herod was unwilling to bow his knees in service to the true king. He would rather slaughter a whole town of innocent little children than lose his throne. Because, Because to Herod, the birth of the Savior wasn't good news. It was a threat to his rule. You know, it's one thing to reject Jesus if you, uh, if you don't know who he is or if you've never heard of him, but it's another thing altogether to know who he is, to know his significance, to know that he's the Savior King from God and yet try to kill him. So what does all this mean for us? You see, Herod saw Jesus as this threat to his throne, and Herod was right. Herod was right to see Jesus as a threat to his throne because Jesus is the king of kings who comes ushering in a new kingdom, a a new kingdom with, with, with a new way of doing things that every other king and every other ruler and every other person would bow their knees to him. And so Herod was right to see him as a threat. That This kingdom had new values. It had different priorities, different rules, different culture. But the only way to join that glorious kingdom was to hand over the reins to Jesus. And Herod is unwilling to do that. He would rather reign in direct opposition to the Lord than submit to another king and have eternal life. But so the question that we must answer this morning is how do we respond to Jesus? You see, we may not sit on literal thrones like Herod, but we most certainly sit on thrones. We are the sovereign rulers of our own lives. We are the sovereign over our own little kingdoms. So the question is, how will you respond to the kingdom of Jesus? Will you respond like Herod? Do you want to keep control? Do you want no one to be a threat to the control of of you and your life and the things that you want to do? Or maybe you will be like the religious leaders. Notice this in verse 3. It's not just Herod who is trouble of the arrival of Jesus, but all of Jerusalem with him. You see, they should have known the Messiah had been born, but they weren't looking. But then when they were told by the wise men, when they're told that he was born, what should they have done? They should have saddled up their camels and headed to Bethlehem. Let's go see the promised Messiah, the one whom we've waited for, the one whom we've longed for, the one who will deliver us. But that's not what they do. You see, this religious leadership in Jerusalem had gained power. They were in control, and they didn't think they needed a Savior. They didn't want anything to change. They liked things the way they were. It's easy to think, maybe when you read this, that they don't respond or they respond in indifference, but they don't. I think they just hope nothing comes of it. I think they just hope, oh, it's a baby, it'll pass. Maybe the wise men were wrong, and so they wait, but they are not indifferent. And when Jesus grows up and he starts teaching there, they were. They know the significance of this baby. They didn't act at his birth. When he grew up, they opposed him at every turn. The religious leaders, they challenged everything he taught. They questioned him. They rebuked him for the people he hung out with. They falsely accused him of blasphemy. They bribed one of his followers to betray him. They arrest him. They hold a sham trial in the middle of the night. 
They hand him over to the Romans to be tortured and executed while demanding another criminal be set free. They watch and cheer as their promised Messiah, their Savior, their long-awaited deliverer is slowly and brutally executed. And they mock him with the same words the wise men said when they arrived announcing his birth. Hail, King of the Jews. See, the religious people who should have known how to respond to Jesus failed. Instead of coming in glad submission with hands open to their Savior King, they killed him. See, the religious people didn't want anyone else coming in and changing things. They didn't want someone else to come and and tell them uh, how they needed to be doing things. They didn't want someone correcting them, even if it was a man from God. So how will you respond to Jesus? Do you respond like Herod? Do you want to keep control? Do you respond like the religious people? Do you not want anyone to come and tell you how to live your life and do not want anyone to change? You like the way things are going? You don't want that to happen? See, both of these parties seek to have Jesus killed and one of them succeeds. All because they could not relinquish control of their lives to their true king. They wanted to remain in charge. So the question that you need to ask this morning is, who does your life belong to? Do you sit on the throne of your life as the sovereign ruler of of your stuff and and your children and your spouse and, and all the things in your life? Are you the one in control of all of these things or have you given them up to the rightful king? Herod gets it wrong, the religious leaders get it wrong, but there's one group that gets it right, the wise men. See, the wise men or the magi or the magicians or the sages, uh, whatever you call them, we don't know how many there were. Our nativity sets show three. We say that because they bring three gifts, gifts, but there could have been 30 of them. We have no idea how many there were. We don't know. However many there were, though, they were these astrologers. They studied the stars. They were magicians. They were wise counselors to foreign kings. They were from the east, the Bible says. And so when the king of whatever kingdom they served needed advice, it was these men who came before the king to to advise him to do this or to do that. They were powerful men whose words and counsel were the neck that turned the head of the king. They were rich. They were powerful, influential men. They were not kings like the song We Three Kings say, but they were as close as you can get without being one. They're from the east, and there's a lot of speculation as to where they're from, and the Bible isn't, isn't clear. It doesn't say, so we're not 100% sure, but it seems the most likely place that they're from is Persia. And that makes a lot of sense when you begin to ask another question. It makes a lot of significance. How did these wise men, these magi, these magicians, these sages, how did they know that the star in the sky represented the birth of the king of kings. How did they know? How did they know about a Jewish Messiah? And how did they know about the star that signaled his birth? You see, if they're from Persia, it makes sense because they would have known their own history. And they would have known the legend of another wise man who came some years before him. Another wise man who counseled the king, who was really above all of the other wise men in the court, who counseled king after king after king in Persia and who was thrown to lions and even lived. 
You see, they would have known the tales of Daniel. And they would have known Daniel was this great man in the king of per- kingdom of Persia. And it's probable that they, wanting to be like Daniel, went and read the scrolls that Daniel was so committed to. They would have read the Old Testament. And they would have read about the prophecy of the Messiah, the king that was to come to rescue the whole world. However they got the scrolls and read them, they knew that this Savior wasn't just for the Jews, but for the whole world. And so when the star was in the sky, as Numbers 22 prophesied about, they knew the king had been born. They knew it wasn't a Jewish king, but a king for the whole world. It was their king as well, and so they followed the star. They left their kingdom and went to find the king that the whole world had been waiting on. And so they go to Jerusalem, thinking, ah, this makes sense. They'll know. But no one in Jerusalem could help them. And what happens next is really interesting. Not only did they head to Bethlehem, but they were led to the exact spot baby Jesus was. And Jesus wasn't in the manger anymore. He wasn't living in a stable anymore. You know, a year or so has passed. And so they've moved into a house. They're living somewhere in Bethlehem. And verse 9 says, Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. See, the Lord with his sovereign control over the universe literally moved the star to guide these foreign wise men to his son. I think it serves as a reminder to us that Jesus did not just come for the Jewish people. He came to save the whole world. He came to save every race, every language, every social class, every economic class, everyone, no exceptions. So God wields the universe and moves the stars to announce to the world that his son has come because the purposes of God is the glad praise of Christ among the peoples of the world. So the wise men follow the star that God is moving to show them. Isn't it interesting that God does that for these foreigners and not his own people? The wise men arrive at the house where Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus were now living And the moment that these rich, powerful, wise men see baby Jesus, these men hit their knees and they bow and they worship him. They don't just honor him. They don't just give him gifts. They don't just do the kinds of things you would do when a new king is born, when a new king has a son and it's a prince. They don't just do those kinds of things. No, they get on their knees and they bow and they worship him. Because this was the king of kings. This was God in the flesh come to rescue the world. So here they are bowed before him and then they give him three gifts. Gold, probably reflecting that he is a king. Frankincense, which was a perfume used in the temple for sacrifices to God, probably reflecting his divinity. Then they give him myrrh. And myrrh is the same uh, thing used at Jesus' burial. Probably to signify his humanity. And here we find these rich, powerful, king-like men laying down gifts, getting on their knees, bowing to Jesus. And what all of their actions say is that though we are powerful, though we are great, though we have a lot of authority and influence in the world, you, 
little baby Jesus, are superior to us. And they worship him. Worship is something only given to God, and they worship the baby because he was God in the flesh. You see, these wise men rightly respond to Jesus. They come with this posture of worship. They come in glad submission to him. They give up their authority. They give up their thrones. They give up control of their lives, saying, you are the rightful king of the world. Have these gifts. Have our worship, and you can have all of our lives. See, in this story, there are three sets of powerful people, and there are only two responses. There are three sets of powerful people and two responses. You see, it would seem when you rightly understand who Jesus is and that he's king and what that means, that you can either stand in opposition and try to kill him, or you can, like the wise men, rejoice and worship and give your lives to him. There is no other reaction. You are either all in or opposed. You see, the gospel of Jesus, this good news that the Savior has come, it, it does one of two things in every single per, per, human heart. When the gospel comes to someone, it does one of two things. It either takes your heart and softens it so that you receive it and believe and are changed, or the gospel comes and it hardens you so that you want nothing to do with him. Those are the two reactions that we can have. That you are either allied with the new king or you are against him. Herod responds. The religious leaders respond. The wise men respond. The question is, how will you respond? See, every one of us in this room is the master of our own domain. We are the kings and queens of our own life. We have our own little kingdoms and our own lives in which we control. And in our lives, we have priorities. We have things that we like to do. We have a way that we like to live our lives. We have a way that we like to spend our money or save our money. We have our own priorities. We raise our children the way that we think they ought to be raised. We use our time the way that we think our time should be used. And the question is, are you willing to take all of that, all of your life, every decision, every financial decision, every decision with your children, every decision in your marriage, everything about all aspects of your life and lay it down at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, you are king. Command me as you wish. I am yours to serve. Do we come giving all of ourselves to the king? Our money and our kids and our priorities and our time, every decision. Can you say to Jesus, I am yours to command? The throne of my life, the authority to rule my life, I freely give it up to you. Are you willing to let go of control? Are you willing to let Jesus sit in the place of control in your life? Are you willing to let him have rule and dominion? If so, here's what you will find. You will find that this king loves you so much that he gave his life for you. 
you will find that his kingdom is better than anything that you could possibly imagine. You will find a king who cares that you have more joy than you ever thought possible. You will find that he uh, should have been sitting on the throne of your life all along, almost as if the throne of your heart was made for him. See, will you, like the wise men, do that in response to the birth and the kingship of Jesus? Or will you be like Herod and the religious people and say, you know what? I need control. This is my life. I don't need anybody telling me how to live it. I don't need anybody else telling me what to do with my money or my time or my children or my decisions. Those are mine. What do some of us do? Some of us, we like Jesus, we like the idea of Jesus, we like the idea of forgiveness and grace, and, and we like the way it makes us feel, we like all that, and we like the saving and the forgiveness, but sometimes we, we come to Jesus and we're like, okay, well, you can have these couple of easy things, but all this other stuff over here, don't touch that, Jesus, that's mine. Yeah, Jesus, you can have a little bit of my time, but the rest is mine. Yeah, Jesus, you can have maybe a little bit of my money, but the rest is mine. Jesus, you can, you can, you know, have my children when they're in church on Sunday, maybe Wednesday, if, you know, I'm in a good mood, but, but the rest of the time is mine. Or do you come to Jesus and say, all that I have is yours. What do you want me to do with it? Because you are the king. And I know that you will lead well. And I know that whatever you want me to do with this stuff will be for my good. Will you be like that or will you be like Herod who will do whatever it takes to keep control? You see, the war on Christmas is not about nativity sets at the Capitol or the courthouse. See, the war on Christmas is not about saying Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. The war for Christmas is being waged right now in every human heart. And the war on Christmas is a fight over which king and which kingdom you will serve. Will you serve your own kingdom or his? The question is, has the war been won in your heart or is it still being waged? Will you continue to see yourself as the king over your own domain or will you, will you cling to your own authority or will you lay it down all of it and say, Jesus, I've been holding back these things, but they are rightfully yours. Will you lay them down for the kingdom of Christ? His kingdom will reign with righteousness and justice, with beauty and wonder the likes of this world has never known. It is a kingdom that will last forever. Your kingdom will pass away. His kingdom goes on and on has no end. So there is a war raging in your heart, and on whose side will you fight? Let's pray. Father, this morning, there's two people in this room. There are the people in this room who have never come to you as their king. They know things about you. They might like religion. They might like church. It might make them feel good. But they have never come with bended knee, saying, Jesus, you are the king of the universe and you are my king. Would you forgive me of all the things I've done wrong and would you be my king and my savior forever and here's my life, command me as you wish. They've never done that, Jesus, and this morning I pray you give them the courage to come talk to me or one of these guys over here on the sides who would just love to share with you 
how you don't have to do anything but believe. He will take care of the rest. He will take care of you. He's the king you've always longed for but never knew it. Maybe right now in this moment you're, you're sitting here and thinking, you know what, I've not done that and I need to and I'm terrified. That's okay. All of us were terrified. But come lay down your life because you will find a king worth following, worth giving your life to. But there are some of you in this room, you've given Jesus your life, you're, you're going to heaven, but man, you keep so much back and you don't let Jesus in and have control. You say, Jesus, I, I, you don't get to make the decisions about these other things in my life. This morning, maybe it's time to come and lay them all down at his feet and say, no, Jesus, you are my king and sorry for holding these things back. All of my life is yours. Every decision, everything is yours. This morning, however you need to respond, maybe you need to stand there and sing to this king. Maybe you need to come and come up here and pray and say, Jesus, because every one of us in this room have things we hold back. Maybe you need to come up here and say, Jesus, I'm holding these things back. Give me the strength to give them to you. Maybe you need to come and say, Brent, or say, I, I, need, to, I need to be saved. I need, to, I need to follow this king. How do I do that? However you need to respond, God, give us the courage and the strength to do it. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. All his people said. Let's stand and sing.